Welcome to another edition of Nipe Story. This fortnightly podcast brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and the rest of the African continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And on this episode, we are featuring the story Missing by Isabella Matambanazzo. The sound of metal rasping through rock filters into the murky end of my dream, nudging at the scenes I cannot remember well. It's a familiar dream. We are together, my grandmother and I. Her bedroom provides the space. On her windowsill is a neatly drawn line of uneven jars, cloudy water filtering the late afternoon sun in a rainbow that inverts itself as I rock up and down on the soles of my feet. I stick out my tongue and see its pink reflection. Some of my friends at school have skin the same color, though we never talk about it. The tip of my tongue swims through the rainbow, dissolving in the strips of yellow, blue, violet, swallowed by the green, orange, and red. As the small waves of the water in the jar try to catch it, I pull it back sharply with a plop that sounds like a pebble falling into a stream. So I think of my younger brother. I wonder where he is and if he made it through. The more I try not to think of these things, the more they snare on the edge of my mind. My brother is flicking stones into the puddles around my grandmother's house, which formed after a storm like tiny oceans protecting an island. He's a cheeky boy, my brother, and my grandmother will smack his bottom with a switch from a peach tree. Once, because he broke one of her windows playing cricket with a length of driftwood, He was talking to himself, providing a running commentary on his game and batting rather high against the heavy green mangoes that hung low. This is the very best cricket we have seen from Viv Richard, he said in the best West Indian accent, stepping into his special trees. My brother paced out to the length of the pitch, reaching for the juiciest fruit. He did not see her turn the corner. This bit is not in my dream. I promise you, it's real life. My brother howled and tried to punch her as he'd seen men do on television when we watched wrestling matches, but my grandmother just laughed and held him at a distance with her long arms. His yelping stopped almost as soon as he'd started, distracted by the multiple legs of Zongororo. The water from my grandmother's well is very hard, so it never quite dampens your thirst. I'm not allowed to play near the well. She has put a small fence around it just to make sure. She tells me that the river brings water to the well. We argue about this because I know the river does not have legs. She thinks I'm foolish, my grandmother, telling me that the river in which we swim brings water to her well. I know better. In my dream, my grandmother's glass jars are filled with the leaves from her most beloved flowers. Half full if you put the plant in, half empty if you pick it up. She does not grow plants from seeds, my grandmother. The grown-ups call her Granny Greenfingers and are forever bringing her stalks to plant in her jars for them. As I go about the garden with her, 
she will lean and snip at a bush here or reach up and nip at a shrub there. She knows how to make a clean cut just at the groove, where leaves and branches will sprout. The tender shoots bud quickly, growing roots and spindly tentacles. When it comes to planting, she lets me do it because she says I also have green fingers. I think she is silly, because my fingers are brown and become even more so with the mud, especially when I squish the roots into her evenly laid out flower beds, as neat and tidy as her bedroom. It's hard for me to do this planting business. The roots have lots of little hairs that want to go their own way when I want them to go down, down, down. To the right of her wooden dresser is a collection of black and white photographs, an archive of her life. My favorite one has her standing at my grandfather's shoulder, looking right into the camera. She's wearing a two-piece suit inspired by the trends set by the wife of a faraway president. I giggle while my stubby fingers stain the glass, transforming the pattern on her suit into mosaic. She's a very serene woman, my grandmother, but I will only learn what that word means when I'm big. Sakuru is more brutish, yet in a delicate way. Big people's words, but I hear them. Serene, brutish. So I've made them mine now. I adore how they come out of my mouth with so much character. Sometimes, when my brother won't play with me because I refuse to be his bowler, I just play with S. Serene. Brutish. My granite pebble chalks them into the sand. I never play with the bee. It does not feel right. He sits. There, my brutish, delicate Sakuru in the place traced by my chubby forefinger. He's starched stiff. Age has made his suit chocolate brown rather than the inky black it was in real life. He strikes a pose of the era in ramrod upright fashion, his back away from the comfort of the wooden armchair, and he dangles his felt hat below his knee. It's as if he's about to take off on a long journey. His eyes show this intent, he has said his bureaucratic farewells. In my dream, it must be the school holidays because I am not wearing my royal blue pinafore in which white lace trim and my feet can enjoy how the sun, a little exhausted from warning the concrete in my grandmother's bedroom, ends the day. And this is where the fogginess comes in, where I start to see my grandmother walking alone down an aisle. But our church is not designed that way, with austere tradition and regiment, so I do not understand where she is. Still dreaming, she appears as a youngish bride, but one with a silver crown of hair twinkling between grey and black patches, betraying the need for a touch-up with dye. It is her only act of vanity, colouring her hair a very jet black once a month. That, and perhaps if you consider it carefully, her ever-so-fastidious nature. The scraping of metal becomes a thud as a forklift crunches earth and moves rubble aside. Can you hear them? I ask my husband. Mm. He turns over, still holding my thumb with his hand. He's always been like that, sleeping with his hand in mine. Do you think we should get up? 
I ask. Maybe later. He mumbles with an exaggerated snore designed to keep me quiet. This is his way. In the years we've been together, I've found him a quiet man who loves tranquility. It was not a quality that first attracted me to him. I misread it for a kind of forlorn dejectedness. The error was mine. But it cost us several years together while I avoided being with him. But now I know. He is a calming, resolute person whose feet make the slightest whisper as he walks about the house. I remember asking him once to sing so that I would know when he was about to arrive. He did not say no, but he found another way to announce himself by gently playing with the keys that always have their home in his pocket or humming, just under his breath, a tune from his childhood. Those who knew him then say he used to strum songs on a homemade guitar. He made the lead in a ragtag boy band group growing up. That's something I miss, the chime of his keys in his trouser pocket and his gentle baritone coming from somewhere light within him. My thoughts have taken me far away. It is the silence that brings me back and the smell of very milky tea leaving a plastic thermos for an enamel cup. How many do you think we'll find today? Asks a voice between slurps. I don't know. I've stopped counting. Another familiar voice replies. But you kept count. Yes, when I thought we would find them. Now I take it day by day. He rubs his stomach, which eases his worry a little. Day by day, he says, getting up. We'll find them, Paidamoyo. His voice has changed with maturity, and I do not recognize it. To me, his name, Paidamoyo, is just a coincidence. The work of washing is always done by women. They know how to find the smoothest rocks where the river water is still so that the fragments do not suffer any further. Their fingers are firm yet gentle, precise, just like mine. Women's hands. I think as I turn over feeling the ridges of the lines in my left palm with the forefingers of my right hand. They also know how to lift up their voices in a chorus that everyone, even newcomers, can sing. They have unyielding patience, just as I was taught to have. There has not been enough funding for the project to acquire all the state-of-the-art equipment for this part of the country. They have reserved the money for the most scientific requirements. So the women load the rubble, which the forklift with its hungry mouth has gouged from the earth's womb into woven baskets. In single file, they head to the banks of the river, walking to the rhythm of their chorus. There, they rinse the soil, returning some of it to the river while keeping the bone to one side, where they have laid out old hessian sacks over the rocks. The sunshine does the drying while the women take a quiet break. There is no need for conversation. All that needs to be said 
is laid out before them. At the lab, a new generation of women with Bachelor of Science degrees in genetics and modern forensic sciences work through the remains. They match, with the assistance of their cameras and computers, this part to that. A stray tooth finds its way beside a female femur. A lone skull joins a knuckle bone. This one is male. Bit by bit, the skeleton is pieced together. Finally, a whole person lies on the sterile tables of the laboratory at the centre of the families of the missing. Sometimes there is a bullet hole in the side of the skull, sometimes not. Relatives who have spent days waiting cross-legged in the cool of the trees fold their mats away. They reach out in polite handshakes of farewell to each other. See you tomorrow. They kick the knots out of their arms and legs. If the ancestors so wish it. They walk past the low-framed windows designed to enable their audience to observe everything. In the early years, some understandable suspicion surfaced about the lab at the Centre for the Families of the Missing. It was another ploy designed by the remnants of the military government to conceal the truth. For a while, people had stayed away, wary of a further plot, of the purported reappearance of those they knew had vanished forever. During this time, according to a rumour that had taken firm hold, there was a mirror on the back wall of the lab. This talisman served to send back the lost ghosts of the lost remains. One of the ghosts, with a combination of stubbornness and the magic conjured only by those who have crossed over but not reached their desired destination, had managed to graft itself so as to look just like one of the forensic archaeologists. This ghost wanted to be remembered and mimicked every gesture the archaeologist made. As she lifted a fragment to examine it under a microscope, so too did the ghost. If she reached for a pen to make notes in her record books, the ghost would follow suit. It became something of a living shadow. People remembered that the grounds at the centre began to fill the year it rained. When a woman in her mid-fifties, a khaki envelope tucked safely in the left cup of her bra, was first at the gate. She reached for it, with neither hope nor anxiety. Her work-worn fingers were steady as she handed it over together with her metal identity card to the woman at a desk marked receiving. An officious stamp recorded the date in the upper corner of her letter, the first of the day in the arrivals tray. The woman was shown to adorable wooden bench just inside the foyer of the centre, where... In the moments to follow, a volunteer served the growing group cups of hot coffee accompanied by thick wedges of brown bread smeared with a fruity jam. They ate and drank in silent trepidation, a little uncertain about what to make of hospitality and orderliness not common in bureaucratic offices. They ate with the sensibility of experience, of never quite knowing how long the wait might be in such an office or if there would be a closed sign thrust before them at lunchtime. The cups and plates were cleared away on new utility trays just as quickly as they had been put out. A young man then worked the bristles of a long broom over the brick floors sweeping up the crumbs. Just as the people on the bench began to relax, 
they were called forward to a softly lit room where, one by one, they were handed a neatly wrapped and labelled parcel that they carefully placed in the cradle of their extended hands. It was no bigger in size than the bundle a new mother is handed by maternity nurses. And so, as the identical twin sisters who worked at the centre handed them back their original letters, now marked, processed, and copies filed in folders tagged, case closed, they accepted condolences for the loss, and the rumour of the ghost in the mirror disappeared. The woman who had been first strapped the bundle of her adult child's bones onto her back and tracked slowly homewards. I had gone to show my husband where we had buried my grandmother, and later, Sekuru. We had left our son, Paidamoyo, with my mother at our home in the city. It was meant to be a short trip, so we left our daughters with her too, born just several months before. They were identical twins, causing confusion that later in life they would use to befuddle their suitors. I showed him where the rainbow used to arc after rain. We walked my grandmother's route. I told him of the year she had given tough love to my brother for breaking her window. With him, we reached back into my childhood from the safe distance that our love, discovered as it was in adulthood, gave us. The mango trees were now exhausted apparitions of their youthful selves. Fat wasps had taken over the knobbly branches of peach trees, arthritic and abandonment. Over the buzz of wasps, we heard their gruff voices. These city people are sellouts. Bastard children of opposition louts. We never saw their faces. We smelt the kerosene seeping through the pores of the aged brick of the hut. Suddenly, the cobwebs in the thatch hut started smoking, kindling the very old wood and hay in the roof we had talked about renovating. We had no words, either of panic or a fear. We did not scream. It did not take long for the hut to flare up in a barbecue that reduced everything, including us, to ash. There was no smell of us. The kerosene took care of that. They kept coming to complete the cremation, stoking the flames with diesel, petrol, and other flammable agents. They even had acid. Cook them good and proper. This country belongs to us and no one else. We will show them all that we are the powerful machines of liberation. We must finish them all. All of them. The first rain of that year came late, but it was gentle with the scorched earth. We were washed as ash into the well. We seeped through the veins in the old rock, a sludgy mixture. Now I understood what my grandmother meant when she said the river brings water to the well. I did that journey, with my beloved husband, but backwards. And now, from the banks of the river, we hear the women packing. The day must be over. Their baskets are lighter and lie on their arms, not their heads. I guess we can get up tomorrow, I say to this quiet man of mine, who, in death, stood by me, if you like. He is polite, even in the life we now live in the river, too polite to break my heart with the truth that we will forever be missing. 
Missing was read to you by Hawa Esman and was written by Isabella Motabanadzo. Isabella is an international feminist, writer, and researcher from Zimbabwe. She is the co-editor of A Beautiful Strength, a journal of 80 years of women's rights movement and activism in Zimbabwe since 1936, and is a contributing author to the short story anthologies Writing Free and to Writing Mystery and Mayhem. Isabella is a contributor to several other works. Nipe's story is available to download wherever you get your podcast from. And please tell your networks about this podcast. You can follow us here on SoundCloud, on Facebook, we are Nipe Story, and on Twitter, our handle is Nipe underscore story. And we're welcoming African short story fiction of between 750 and 4,500 words. Please email us on nipestorypodcast at gmail.com if you have a short story that you'd like us to consider. Thank you for listening. Nipe Story is a Finger Piano production. <laughs>